Okay, good morning, Gateway family. Okay, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you this morning. I'm so glad that we get to gather together to worship the Lord. If you want to be making your way to find a seat as you come in, there's some extra seats still in the back corners over there if you're still looking for a place. We are so grateful that you are here and that we get to worship the Lord together this morning. Now, just several announcements for you. These are opportunities for you to connect in community here and to be involved in things in the life of the church. We had a great kickoff to our fall semester of Wednesday night activities this past week. So just to remind you, midweek activities at Gateway continue on Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock p.m. Our children are doing the Gospel Project for Kids. The youth are doing the names of God, and the adults are doing a study on the attributes of God, where we meet in here in the sanctuary, talk about who God is, and then break up into smaller groups in the gym building. We had a fantastic kickoff. It's not too late to join us, so if you're interested, this Wednesday at 6 o'clock. Now, for our visitors, we begin our foundations class as our membership class here. It's a four-week class. It begins in three weeks on, on Sunday, September 10th. It meets during the Bible study hour at 9 a.m. It's actually going to be here in the sanctuary at 9 a.m. for four weeks starting September 10th. So we'd like to invite you to be part of that. If you'd like to know more about membership here, it's the, first, it's the second step in membership process here. But you're welcome to come. Just learn about us. We talk about the gospel and the church and what it means to be a member. You're not required to join if you do the class, but it's a great way to explore that. And details are on our website at Gateway Baptist. Com. Now, for the women, a special opportunity is coming up October 6 to 8. There is a women's retreat called Rest and Retreat. Now, Missy Cruz has put this together. Missy, back there. Wave your hand. Missy's in the very back by the door right there. If you want to learn more, go see Missy. It is also on the website now. So, gatewaybaptist.com. Go to the news and events, and you'll see a whole thing about the women's retreat. They're going up to Mentone just for a chance to rest and enjoy each other's in community and enjoy the Lord's presence and just to have a time to rest in the busyness of life. Registration is open and you can get that on the website as well. Now last opportunity I want to mention this morning is next weekend our teenagers, Gateway students, are doing a special drama presentation. Our youth love doing drama and they're doing a dramatization of the book of Ruth. And so they've been hard at work. The teenagers have helped develop the script, they've developed the costumes, they've planned it, they put it all together and of course they are acting in that. There's two performances next weekend for you here in the sanctuary, Saturday at 2 o'clock and then Sunday afternoon, not today, but a week from today at 4.30. Now for those of you who have young kids, we know it can be hard with wiggling babies to enjoy a drama, so there is going to be the preschool staff for children two and under. So your three-year-olds and up would stay with you to watch the dramatization of Ruth. We do have childcare for the youngest ones, for the babies and toddlers and the priests. So it's just about a 20-minute production, so we'd encourage you to come, be encouraged from the story of Scripture, as well as to encourage our teenagers. And again, details are on the church website at gatewaybaptist.com if you would like to learn more. Well, as we turn our heart to the Lord, I want to ask you to stand as I read Scripture for us. Our first two songs this morning about us praising the Lord. One is a familiar one to us. The second was a new song that Justin and the praise team are going to introduce to us this morning. And so as we think about the privilege we have of worshiping the Lord and praising Him, I want to read from Psalm 148 and hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind 
fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Let's do that very thing scripture commands us. Let's praise the Lord this morning.
Grady read uh, Psalm 148 for us this morning, and that's where this next song is uh, written out of. That's a song that Sovereign Grace had written called Praise His Name. So I would like us as a church just to read the first six verses of that song together. Praise the Lord. sing this song together. Sing Reaches of Heaven. Reaches of Heaven. Starry heights. Lights of the
depths of the sea, from the heights of the heaven, your name be praised from the hearts of the weak, from the shouts of the strong, from the lips of all this morning, God, that you are magnified. God, you are sovereign over all creation, Lord, and as we begin this series this morning and going through Genesis and looking at just you as God the creator in the beginning and just your plan of redemption strong throughout Genesis and just those that you've given us to mirror the future plan you had to come and redeem us, Father. May you be glorified in this place, Father, as you know we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. 
You may be seated. We get the joy of a baptism this morning, and so we are thrilled to celebrate this together. This morning, we get to celebrate the baptism of Jeremy Walker. He's coming into the tank right there with his dad, Derek. So I just want to remind you why we baptize. So we hit the lights for the baptistry so they can be seen in there. That'd be great. I'm going to read to you, first of all, from Matthew chapter 28. Familiar words at the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We do baptism as our confession of faith. As you heard me say many times, there's nothing magical about these waters. This is the same Montgomery soapy tasting tap water you have at home, and there's nothing blessed or magical about it. But this is a symbol, and it is a powerful symbol. This is the way a believer says, yes, I am trusting in Christ. And we do baptism the way we do, with pushing people under the water and bringing them back up, because it's a picture of saying, I believe Christ died for my sins and was buried, and on the third day rose again. But beyond that is also a confession of saying, I believe because of God's grace that has pursued me, that God has died, killed me in my old ways of life, and he's brought me up to walk in newness of life. It's a confession of faith that I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, Christ alone to change me to be all that I desire for, or he desires for me to be. But friends, this is also a proclamation on the part of the church, that we believe that God's grace has captured your heart, and we believe that God is at work in you, and we are celebrating that with you. That's why we do this publicly here as your public profession of faith and us celebrating as a community of faith what God has done in your life. So to begin with, we want you to hear Jeremy's testimony. So Alicia Jong here is going to come share it with you. So this is something Jeremy and I talked through earlier this week, and it starts with Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Jeremy says, this verse reminds me that God is always in control and he is sovereign. When I went to Deep Impact, the youth mission camp, I wasn't expecting to get saved, but God had a different plan. One night we were asked to pray for the youth pastors who were there, and I felt motivated to pray for Pastor CJ, so I walked up and prayed for him. That was from the Holy Spirit. After that, I felt like I needed to give my life to Jesus. Before I was saved, I came to church and listened to sermons just to hear the words, but I didn't really care about what it meant. When I sang the songs, I sang just to sing. I only read my Bible for school lessons or when someone told me to read. I didn't particularly want to do things for others. I had a lot of anger in my heart, and I held it there. Now, every time I listen to sermons or Sunday school, I want to hear more of the word. Now, when I sing songs, I think about what they mean. Now, I read my Bible, and I pray a lot more than I used to because it helps me have a better relationship with God. Now, I'm willing to serve others with happiness, and I have more peace and joy. I still get angry sometimes, but I pray for God to heal my heart. He relieves the anger in my heart. I see that I have a greater purpose in life, and that is to point others to Christ. God is always in control, and he will never leave you. He will love you no matter what. I've heard this before, but now I believe. And Jeremy, I just wanted to add that you um, have always been loyal and helpful and a leader, and I'm so excited to get to continue growing with you, 
seeing Christ at work in you. And so I'm really thankful to call you brother and family and for the rest of our lives in eternity. So we love you. And Valerie is asked to share as well next. Yeah. Um, so Pastor CJ could not be here, so he wrote out his message for you, though, and I'm going to attempt to read it. And I don't think I'll be successful. All right. Jeremy, my soccer buddy, I'm so sorry I can't be here this morning to celebrate with you and our faith family here at Gateway, but I just wanted you to know that I'm so proud of you in professing your faith in Christ publicly and taking this step in believer's baptism. It is a beautiful display of the gospel that has transformed your life. God has used you to have a huge impact on my life the past couple months. Watching the Holy Spirit transform your heart at Deep Impact was amazing, and it had a ripple effect on our whole team. God used your life as a catalyst among your friends, and now seeing the young man of God you've become has been so encouraging. You have a sweet, genuine faith that is so appealing, and I know God will use you to reach many with the gospel. Please know that I love you, and I'm so excited to share life with you on your faith journey. God bless, Pastor CJ. Um, yeah, I can't read what I wrote. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Aw, thanks, Valerie. Anyone else like to share a word of encouragement? Uh, Jeremy or Daniel? Pastor CJ said exactly what I was going to say uh, for you, Jeremy. Those of us who were at Deep Impact, you know, remember that night very well, how the Holy Spirit just got a hold of you. And I was going to use, use the word catalyst as well. I mean, there, you were a catalyst for the students and for the, the youth leaders that help out. It's been amazing to see, and I'm so glad that you are carrying out this walk by going through Believer's Baptism. You know, we all love you. I'll just pray for you and encourage you. So thank you for walking this out. I know others are watching, and it's encouraged them as well. So thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, Daniel. Hey, Nikki. Jeremy, I don't normally do this, and we don't know each other, but I wanted to say that all three of my children, their labor and delivery, were the way they happened became prophetic of their personality and their callings. And when you, what happened to you at camp, I felt like was prophetic for your spiritual birth, that God is going to use you exactly what Daniel just said. He's going to use you as a catalyst for the kingdom of God. And it's gonna be through brokenness and humility. And my encouragement to you, as you are still young, but you are on fire for God, is to prioritize your quiet times with him and be in his word. Everything in the world is going to try to pull you away from that, but that is going to be your foundation, and it's that brokenness and beautiful humility that is in you that God is going to be powerfully using you for him. Thanks, Nikki. Anyone else? Any of your friends or teachers want to say a final word? I see Lydia back here. Jeremy, you are such a light to be around, and... I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been noticing the change in you. I didn't get to go to Deep Impact, but I've seen God at work in your life. And I've, I've, I've watched you every day when you come in every Sunday, every Wednesday, and I've seen just an effervescence from you, a light that has just come from the inside out. And I know that's been the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and in your life. And it's a joy and an honor and a beautiful thing to witness. And I want to thank you for allowing me into your life to see that firsthand. You truly are a changed man. 
of God. And I am so happy to see how he continues to grow you and how he continues to help you mature in faith in your walk. It's already such a firm foundation in your life right now. And I am just so happy that you've allowed me to come alongside and watch and, and help encourage you. As you encourage others and everybody else around you, your life really is a testament to God at work in you and your humility shines and your creativity that you sometimes try to hide, but it's there. It just flows out of you so freely now. And I'm so happy that you've made this transformation and that, that God has just overflowed from you and others are able to bear witness. Continue to walk in that and continue to bear witness to the glory that God has gifted you with and the redemption that he's brought to your life. Amen. Thanks, Lydia. Hey, Mike. Give me some extra exercise this morning, back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jeremy. It's just an honor and a privilege to walk us alongside you at this church. Um, I know uh, two years ago, you were part of my Sunday school class, fifth and sixth grade boys Sunday school. And uh, as I started uh, volunteering in the youth group, it's just been a joy to, to reconnect with you and to really see God's change in your life. Like Lydia, I wasn't able to go to Deep Impact, but I've certainly heard a lot about it and just uh, so proud of you uh, for taking the step today and publicly declaring your, um, that Jesus has saved you. And just wanted to, um, I think one thing when I think of you, I, I just feel like you're, you're so considerate of others. I know, um, you know, I always ask uh, a lot of, uh, you know, preteens and teens how they are doing. And I think you were the only one that always asked how I'm doing, uh, how my work's going. And so that just, to me, uh, shows just your, your care for others and just pray that through the Holy Spirit you will continue that. And as others have said, just so excited to see how God works in your life and how you impact not only the youth group but beyond. And so I'm, I'm proud of you and just praying for you. Thanks, Mike. One more. Okay. Uh, Jeremy, I'm just uh, very proud of you for making this decision to just proclaim uh, your faith today. Um, I've just really appreciated being with you and the youth, uh, being uh, a small group leader for you uh, some of the times. Uh, just, I've always appreciated your gentleness, and I think as you move forward in faith, I'm just really looking forward to uh, seeing the fruits of the Spirit just continue to blossom in your life. Fantastic. Okay. Last one, Brina, and we'll let Derek share. Jeremy, I'm so thankful God saved you. You are already being a blessing to so many of us here, seeing you standing there like uh, many who are here have been there in the past. I'm remembering myself being there about 22 years ago here at Gateway, and uh, it just ministered to us seeing God is still working on people's life like he's doing in your life. But this doesn't surprise me because of the parents you have, because of this church you are in, because of the family you have, because of uh, the soccer coach you have, Coach Travis is here today, who has been a huge impact in your life too. But most importantly, because of the God you have, because he, through his Holy Spirit, comes and does his work in his sovereignty, like you shared on your testimony, and your testimony brought uh, some uh, water to my eyes here, and uh, you are blessing so many people. I 
would like, as Nikki was sharing here, to encourage you and put this invitation there for you as an opportunity. Uh, your teammate Cole is here today from your soccer team. In our club, we have a volunteer, player-led FCA meetings, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So if the Lord puts that in your heart, and uh, if this is something in God's timing that uh, you and Cole, like Cole's sisters, Chloe, leads the older girls on FCA, the opportunity is there. Uh, come, man, and let the Lord use you on the soccer team and uh, you can be a wonderful leader there through this FCA as you already have been throughout your youth soccer career. And we're just so excited to see what God will continue to do. And, man, just keep on enjoying the Lord and uh, following him as he is in control and will keep you till the end. We love you, buddy. Good word. Good word, Bruno. All right, well, we want the last word of encouragement to be from your dad. So, Derek, we're going to turn it over to you now. Son, I can't tell you how much mom and I love you. Uh, I know mom would like to speak, but she's in tears. Um, we love all of our children. Uh, we wanted a big family, and God has blessed us in ways that are beyond. So we are just so happy for you. Uh, we know how much anger and wrestling with life you've done and to find your peace and identity in Christ is a huge blessing and a great joy for us and so we hope that you always experience the joy uh, that you have in that identity. also want you to know that this is just the first step. There are going to be many challenges in life as you grow in your faith and your walk with the Lord and so just never, ever, ever give up. God, like you said in your testimony, will see you through. Um, so just know that those challenges are coming and don't give up. And as a charge to the church, don't give up in discipling Jeremy. It is our job as a church. He is my son, but now he is also my brother in Christ. And I am just so thankful that I can call you both a brother and a son. So it's with that I want to ask you a question before we baptize you. Do you accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and his death, burial, and resurrection? Yes. Yes. All right. Let's go this way. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we do, we do rejoice in that, in his celebration, his profession of faith. So, Rick, we're going to turn over to you to lead us in a prayer time. How encouraging. Read from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning, we do so and give thanks for Jeremy and what you've done in his life. Father, Jeremy's baptism this morning 
reminds us that you have made purification for sins. Lord, this morning for anyone in this room who may not know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. We gather to worship you because you have made known to us your saving power through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There can be nothing better than to praise your name and declare your loving kindness this morning on this Lord's day. We gather today to serve and to honor and to exalt your name. We remember with thanks the creation of the world by the power of your word and the redemption of humanity by the death of your son, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We declare this morning your greatness and omnipotence. Father, yours is the glory and the victory, and we praise you. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Riches and honor come from you. We exist because of you. You are our creator and redeemer, and you reign over all. And you give grace to all. Power and strength are in your hands. And so we bless you and give you the glory for redeeming and saving us from our sin and from your wrath. Father, thank you for this time in which we can offer our requests to you and petitions, knowing that, Lord, all things are from you and to you and through you. Lord, we pray this morning for our Gateway family. The fall season has started and we have a new schedule. We pray for the Bible study and the small groups that are meeting. And we ask, Lord, that through these studies, through these fellowships, that we might grow in our love for you, also grow in our love for one another. I pray that your word would take root in our heart, that we might see more of who you are, that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Lord, thank you for the ministries here at this church and for the many who are participating. And we ask, Lord, that out of that much fruit would be born. Lord, we pray this morning for Eastern Hills Baptist Church. We know that they are currently searching for a new pastor, and we just pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and grace as they seek this new shepherd to lead to lead them. Lord, I pray that you would give grace upon grace in that context. Thank you for the many churches in this area, Lord, uh, who are faithfully proclaiming your word, but we also know that there are others who are looking for pastors, and we ask, Lord, that you would give them men who are faithful to proclaim your truth. Lord, we also want to pray for global missions. And we think this morning of uh, Agricola Theological Seminary in Finland, which has begun a new semester with about 15 students this past Wednesday. We just pray, Lord, as that seminary begins, we pray for those students that they will receive richly from the word as it is taught. And that, Lord, they would grow in the grace and knowledge of you as they prepare to minister and to be shepherds. I pray that they would grow both in word and deed as you prepare them to lead churches in Finland. Lord, we pray this morning for our offering. Thank you for those who have given. Lord, all that we have belongs to you. Help us on this day as we think about how we have been blessed immensely, materially, Lord, that we would give back out of obedience and out of love because, Lord, what we have is a gift from you. And Lord, help 
take what we give back and that you would use it to further your kingdom. Pray, Lord, that we would use these resources to magnify and glorify the work that is being done around the world. And Lord, as Grady comes this morning to preach from Genesis chapter 1, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Pray this morning, Lord, that as your word goes forth, we would be amazed at your infinite, majestic, and glorious creativity this morning. I pray, Lord, that it would come alive and we would leave here rejoicing in the God of our salvation. Lord, we thank you and we give you all the glory. In Christ's precious name, amen. Mr. John and Miss Lisa this morning. So first of fourth graders, parents, just a reminder, if you'll pick them up as soon as the service over, then you come back in here and fellowship afterwards. But while the kids are on the move, if you'll find Genesis chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 1. Friends, we are beginning today a 10-month journey, verse by verse, through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So why Genesis now as a church to stay together, friends? Because I want us to see together the importance of the Old Testament. We spent a lot of time, and it's been good in the epistles and even in the Psalms, but I want us to see the value in how we study the Old Testament. I want to see these opening chapters of God's Word, which lay a, such a solid foundation for us. In these first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're going to see so much about God and about His will and about His plans. And it's what we're going to look at over these 10 months is so foundational to all we believe. So I was studying on Genesis 1 this week. One of the authors I read said this. He said, Genesis stands second to none in its importance for proclaiming the whole will of God. And that's why we're starting here. We want to know, as a body of believers, we want to know the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we're going to go back to the foundations of Genesis 1 through 11. But this author goes on and says something pretty profound. He says, if we possessed a Bible without Genesis, we would have a house of cards without foundation or mortar. If we had a Bible that did not have Genesis in it, we would have a house of cards that did not have foundation or mortar. Because Genesis is that important for us to understand who God is and who we are in God's plan for the world and for us. Now, before we jump into the first verse of Genesis this morning, I want to give you some big picture overview of what we're looking at to help guide our study so we understand what we are studying in the next 10 months. First of all, obviously, we're in the Old Testament now. This is the part of Scripture written before Jesus came. This is a book that would then appear in both the Jewish and the Christian Scriptures. Now, Genesis obviously was not written in English. It was written in the Hebrew language, the language of the Jewish people. And when Genesis was written, it was actually not called Genesis. Back when this was written in Hebrew, the common way you titled a book was you just took the first several words of the first line, and that became the title of the book. And so the very first words of Genesis, what we know as Genesis, was a Hebrew word, Bereshith, which means in the beginning. And so the title of the book here originally in Hebrew was Bereshith. It was the Hebrew word for in the beginning. So people would say, open in your copy of God's word to the book in the beginning. Now, around 250 years before Christ came, 250 B.C., Genesis was translated from Hebrew into the Greek language of the day. And the Greek word for in the beginning was Genesis. And so over the years in the Greek, the word Genesis, it became transliterated into English. And so we now know this book as Genesis. Now, that's a fitting title for us because Genesis tells us the beginnings of so much. Here we see the beginning of the universe. 
the beginning of our world, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of marriage and family. We see the beginning of sin and brokenness and pain. We see the beginning of languages and diversities of people. And yet here we also see the beginning of hope, hope of salvation and a redeemer, hope of the restoration of all things at the end of time and so much more. Now, friends, when we're reading Genesis, we're reading something written by Moses. Yes, the same one who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. The Jewish and Christian historians who study it say he probably wrote this around the 15th century B.C. So 1,500 years before Christ came is when they think this was written. This would have been the time of Exodus when the people were wandering in the desert. They come out of slavery in Egypt. They were longing for the promised land. And the scholars say that in the waiting, they would ask questions of Moses about their past and the history of the world. And somewhere in these wilderness wanderings, Moses wrote down... What we have is Genesis. He wrote down the history of the, of the beginnings of the world, Genesis 1 to 11, the history of God's people, Genesis 12 and following. Friends, I want to remind us that even though Genesis was written by Moses and he's the human author, we're reading the words of God himself because God inspired the authors to write these truths down. It's what we, the truth we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we're told that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So even though Moses was the human author, we have here in Genesis 1 through 11, as the rest of Scripture, we have the words of God. Now, friends, this type of writing as we're in Genesis is different than what we've been used to. There's different genres, different types of writings in Scripture. We're used here to a lot of the epistles. That's what we've focused on, the letters. But now we're jumping into a genre of Scripture known as historical narrative. The, the, the narratives, the stories that have been recorded for our instruction here that tells us the good and the bad of what actually happened. Now, there's a danger for us I want to caution us of as we jump into a new genre of historical narratives. It's really easy when you're studying historical narrative to just look at a story and try to find an inspirational thought from it. Or to read a story and try to come away with a soundbite from it. Or to read one of these stories in Genesis and be like, oh, look, you should be like that. Don't be like that. That's not why this has been given to us. As we work through Genesis, through the narratives of Genesis, there's four things I want you to look for over these next next 40 weeks. Four, Four main themes I want us to see in Genesis. Number one is the nature of God. The nature of God, his character, his attributes. Genesis is God's self-revelation of who he is and his nature. Because that's why on Wednesday nights we're doing the attributes of God as adults because it pairs so closely with what we're seeing in Genesis of who God has revealed himself to be. The second thing I want to look for besides the nature of God is the nature of people. Because Genesis gives us a very sobering picture of the fallen nature of humanity, of sin and what sin nature produces. But it also shows us what our own sin produces. And so these stories in Genesis of brokenness and sin are not for us to point fingers and be like, oh, they were terrible people. It's for us to look in our own hearts and go, my sin nature is just like that. I need to repent before the Lord. So as we go through Genesis, we want to see the nature of God, the nature of people. Number three, I want you to look for Jesus as we go through Genesis. I want you to look for Jesus. You may be going, but wait, wait, this was 15 centuries before Jesus came. But Genesis points us to him. Luke chapter 24, verse 44, as Jesus is talking to his disciples after his resurrection, notice what he says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, notice this, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now you have to realize in Jewish terminology, the law of Moses was the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Books that are called the Pentateuch, the first five books. So Jesus lumps Genesis in as the law of Moses and notices everything written about 
me. That Genesis was written about Jesus because it points us to him. This is exactly what Jesus showed the two disciples. If you know the story earlier in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus had been raised from the dead. These disciples are walking. Jesus appears. They don't recognize him at first. He begins to talk to him. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, notice what Jesus says. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Genesis is pointing us to Jesus. It teaches us about Jesus and the Redeemer who is coming. So as we study Genesis, look for the nature of God. Look for the nature of people, but look for how this points us to Jesus. There's an author named Nancy Guthrie, and she said it so well. She said, as we read the Old Testament, we do not want to make merely observations about the behavior of the godly and the behavior of the godless, and then try harder to be like the godly and try to be less like the godless. The Old Testament serves to point out our cavernous need for a better lawkeeper, a better judge, a better prophet, a better priest, a better king. And that's exactly what we'll see throughout Genesis is that we need, we have a huge need for a better lawkeeper, a better priest, a better prophet, a better king, and that is going to point us all to Jesus. One last theme I want you to look for as you go through Genesis, and that's grace. And that may not be the word that most people think of when they think of Genesis, but it's here all throughout. Because in Genesis, we're going to see sin abounding in so many ways. But what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 is when sin abounds. Now, it says the law came in to increase the trespass. But when sin increased or sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And if you're with us Wednesday night in the attributes of God, we talked about God doesn't change. There's not a God of wrath in the Old Testament, a God of grace in the New Testament. God is unchanging, and he's fully all of his attributes all of the time. So we will see God's grace all throughout Genesis. As sin abounds, we will see his grace abounding also. So that's what we want to look for in the big picture as we journey these next 10 months through Genesis 1 through 11. But this morning, we want to start where it all begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? Just one verse this morning for us to start off in our Genesis study. Genesis 1.1. I'm reading out the English Standard Version. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that one's short enough. I think we can all read that one together. So let's, let's proclaim that one out loud. Would you say it with me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father, we thank you for these profound words of your self-revelation that you've given to us. I pray as we think about them this morning that you would stir our hearts with awe and wonder of who you are and your nature and that we get to know you. So have your way as we look at your word together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So I told you we're only doing one verse this morning. That's actually not quite true. We're only doing half of this verse this morning, and we'll do the other half of the verse next week. So this is Genesis 1-1, part A, if you will, this morning. We want to look at the first four words in the English day, in the beginning God. And we're going to stop right there this morning. In fact, in the Hebrew it was written, and these are actually only two words. So today's sermon is based on two words in the Hebrew, four words in the English, in the beginning God. But friends, these words are so profound. Now, friends, from the outset, the beginning of Scripture is an important corrective for our heart tendencies. Now, how so? I may be dating myself a little bit here, but did any of you like me when you were in high school or college ever get a yearbook? Anyone ever live in the world of yearbooks? Okay. When you got your yearbook, what was the first thing you looked for in the yearbook? Yourself, right? Everyone immediately starts flipping through. You skip through dozens of pages because you want to find your picture and how you look or your sports team or your club or, in my case, my math team and science team and all those type things I like to do in high school. You found yourself in the yearbook. Now, why, friends? Because we're intrinsically self-focused. We want to see ourselves. 
And we're going to see that all throughout Genesis. Now, many years ago, I was listening to a speaker at a church. He was a guest speaker. In the middle of his talk, he began to read Genesis 1 very, very slowly. I don't think I can do justice at my rate of speed to it, but he began reading in his talk like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, you get the idea. He went on and on through Genesis 1 at that pace. And if you look around the room, you saw people started getting bored. They started stretching, started yawning, they started looking at their phones. They started to check out as he read Genesis 1. And by the time he got to the end, he came to the end. He said, I know many of you are bored. He said, why? So the reason you're bored is because this text is not about you. He said, you've been trained your whole life in Bible study to go to the Bible and find you in it. To do the yearbook syndrome. Where am I in this text? What do I learn about me? What's God want to do for me? What's God's promise for me? He said, you've been trained your whole life to look at the text to find yourself. He said, in Genesis 1, you're not there. And so you started checking out. Friends, talk about conviction in the room that day. And that truth is for us as we begin Genesis 1.1. The main subject of Scripture is not us. The main subject, yes, the Bible talks about us. The Bible addresses us. It speaks to us. It instructs us. But the main subject of Scripture is not me and is not you. Genesis 1.1, the corrective force at the outset is the Bible is primarily about God. Go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. In the Hebrew grammar here, the first subject of the first sentence of all of Scripture is God himself. It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. He is the subject of Genesis 1.1. The first sentence, he's the subject of the first book. He's the subject of all of Scripture. And what's so interesting here is, you know, there's many names for God in Scripture. Our teenagers are studying the names of God right now on Wednesday nights. But here, the name of God that God first picks to reveal himself to us is his Hebrew name, Elohim. This is a name that appears more than 2,700 times in Scripture. Now, I did not count, but I'm trusting the scholars who do count and study things like that. This is a common name of God in Scripture. But what's so interesting is this particular, different parts, different names of God stress different, different aspects of his nature and character. This is the name of God that, that stresses his transcendence, his otherness, his difference from all of creation and his difference from us. And so the corrective for us with our yearbook syndrome of where am I in here is the Bible begins with showing us God and how different he is from us. So what do we learn about God in these first two Hebrew words, our first four English words, in the beginning, God? Well, there's a lot we can talk about. I'm going to give you seven things we learn about God in these four words this morning. And I've actually trimmed this down for the second time. There was more I wanted to say, but I've got it boiled down to seven things we learn about God this morning in these first four words of in the beginning, God. First of all, what do we learn about God from here? Elohim, God who's so different. Number one, we learn he is eternal. He's eternal. He has no beginning. In the beginning, God. That means when the beginning happened, God already was there. That everything else is created by him. We're going to study that more next week in Genesis 1, 1, part B here. That means that everything was made by God and nothing made God. He's always existed. The word we use is eternal. We see this later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, the God who's everlasting, no beginning and no end. You see the psalmist celebrating this in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. In Psalm 92, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from 
everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We see this describing Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And notice this, and he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold Together, God is eternal. He has no beginning. As far back as you could possibly look, there's God. And as far forward as you can look, there is God. Another one of the authors I read said, God has always existed, and his existence does not arise from anything or anyone else. This is one of the great differences between you and God. You have parents. However mysterious the origin of life always is, there still were biological events that resulted in your being. But no such thing can be said about God. Because this makes our minds hurt. Because everything you and I know in the world has a beginning and has an end, but not God. He is eternal. In the beginning, he already was there. So we learn he's eternal. Second thing we learn about God, this makes our brains hurt even more. God is outside of time. God is outside of time. Time, a succession of moments, is something that God created in the beginning. Time began in the seven days of creation. That means there was a time, and I use the word loosely, when there was no time. So if you're having trouble falling asleep tonight, you can think about that. There was a time when there was no time. There was just God. Another one of the authors I read said this, before there was matter, before there was time, before there was space, there was just God. God who has no succession of moments in his own being. God who alone is infinite and eternal. The uncreated creator, unique in eternality. He's the uncreated creator. He is outside of time. That means God sees all time equally vividly, past, present, and future. So we can see things like Psalm chapter 90, verse 4. And the truth the psalmist puts down, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And because God is outside of time and not bound by the succession of moments like us, he can declare what will already happen. He can will what will, art, what will f- happen in the future because he sees it all clearly. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. These are profound words. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and declaring from ancient times things not yet done. Say, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not bound by time, so he can declare the end before it even happens. So go back to verse 1. In the beginning, God. God is eternal. God is outside of time. The third thing we see about this, that means God needs nothing. God needs absolutely nothing. We are so dependent, so finite, so limited. God is not. God needs nothing. As we'll see in the weeks to come, he speaks, and with the sound of his voice, the world comes into being. He does not use raw materials. We'll get into that next week. He depends on no one and nothing else. He needs absolutely nothing to do whatever he wants to do. Psalm chapter 50, verses 9 through 12 is a picture of this. He says to people, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, which he's not, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God needs nothing from us. Acts 17, we see something similar in the teaching of the early church. The God who made the world and everything in it, come to that again next week, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, verse 20, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God needs nothing. Now, a quick aside on that, friends, you realize that means we cannot bargain with God. 
We have a tendency to want to bargain with God. If you'll do this, I'll do this. Friends, we have nothing to bargain with because even our very breath in our lungs is from God. We have nothing of ourselves that cannot be said of God. God is, needs absolutely nothing. He's self-sufficient. He is independent. So verse one, in the beginning, God. God is eternal. God is outside of time. God needs nothing. Number four, this means God has a plan for all things. God has a plan for all things. You may be thinking, okay, where in the world are you pulling that one from? How do we get that out of in the beginning God? Well, this, this Hebrew word in the beginning I mentioned earlier is the Hebrew word beresheth. It's used to mark the start of a period of time, but this word marks the start of a period of time that has an ending as well. So this term doesn't mean something began and just kind of floats through doing whatever. This marks the beginning of a period of time that has a definite end as well. So this term could be used at the beginning of a year, which will have a definite end 365 days later. It can be used to describe the reign of a king that begins and has a definite end when the king is conquered or the king dies. And you see these words used in tandem, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 12. It's talking about the land, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it. Notice this, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So when you see in the beginning in the Old Testament, it implies an in the end as well. That means when God created in the beginning, he had an in the end already in view. When he created the universe, he already had a plan for what would happen at the end of time for it all. And what is the end like? Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 6 tell us what it's like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end to the thirsty I give from the spring of, of water of life without payment. And so when God created in the beginning, he wasn't going, Okay, I wonder if my people are going to get this right or mess it up. I wonder what we'll do if they mess it up. He created with the end in view, with the new heavens and new earth in view. He created with the cross in view, with the church in view. He created with the fall in view. God didn't make it hoping one thing would happen and had a plan B if it didn't work out. God created with the end in view and his perfect plan for all of history happening along the way. That means all we see in Genesis accomplishes God's plan, even the brokenness of the world. As this all pointing us to the cross, the cross was not plan B. It was God's plan that when he created in the beginning, the cross was already in his plan. God is sovereign, and he's working out his plan from the beginning. We saw this a minute ago, but Isaiah 46.10 reminds us of this. He says, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So go back to verse 1. In the beginning, God. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He needs nothing. And he has a perfect plan. Now, the next two things we learn here are tied to his name, this name God, Elohim here. Now, something interesting about this that kind of stumps the scholars. Scripture is so clear there's one God. But when, when God, the word Elohim was written here, it was written in the plural form. Plural, God. Plural, Elohim. But then what follows is God created. Created is singular. Normally, you're Singular, you, you, normally your subject and your verb have to agree in, their, in 
you know, number of persons, so to speak. But here you have plural for God with singular for creation. Now, scholars have two different answers of what that means. Some of them say this is the first reference in Scripture to the Trinity. They say the plural use of Elohim here, of God, shows us that God exists in perfect community himself. We know from the rest of Scripture this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's a good reason to believe that's what's in view here with the plural Elohim, the plural God. Because if you go to the very next verse, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So there's already a reference to the Holy Spirit right after we see the plural God here. And if you go to John chapter 1, verse 1, notice the parallels. I don't know if you've ever noticed Genesis 1 and John 1 in parallel. In the beginning... So one of the Gospels of the New Testament starts with the exact same phrase that Genesis 1 starts with. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1, John 1, in the beginning, the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so some of the scholars say the plural for Elohim here, for God in Genesis 1, is a first reference to the Trinity based on how it's used in John 1, how it's used in Genesis 1, 2. Others go, no, no, this is not the Trinity, This is referring to God's majesty because in the Hebrew language, when something is so grand, so majestic, so glorious, that you you make the world plural to try to capture the greatness of that word. And so they're saying what this is doing here is showing us that God is so beyond us. Elohim is so transcendent and so different than us that it's written in the plural to help us capture how majestic he is. And well, Scripture tells us that too. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And his majesty is so great, his excellence is so great, he's constantly being praised in heaven for all eternity for how majestic he is. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Who, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you create all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now, friends, which is it? Can I suggest we don't have to argue and pick over that? Both are very consistent with the counsel of Scripture. God plural is God plural. He is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this triune God is so majestic that no word can capture his greatness, so it is put in plural. So I believe it's actually both. So number five, what do we learn about God here? God is triune, the plural God singularly created. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is triune. He's the Trinity. Now, a quick aside on that as well, friends, this answers the common misconception that God created the world because he was lonely. Friends, that is nonsense. You ever hear that? You should probably disregard most other things you hear at that point because God is never lonely. God does not need anything. He's perfectly existed for all eternity as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in perfect love, perfect unity, perfect community forever. He did not make the world because he needed something to do. He needs nothing. God is triune. And then number six, God is glorious. God is majestic. He's so majestic that a singular word can't capture his greatness. So in the beginning, plural, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He is the majestic, all-glorious God. And he made everything, to sh- not because of us, he made everything to show how majestic and glorious he is. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. I've referenced this one many times in the past, but it says, Everyone whom is called by my name, this is God speaking, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made us not because we're amazing. He made us not because he's lonely. He made us to showcase his incredible majesty and his glory. So back to verse 1. In the beginning, God. God's eternal. God's outside of time. God needs nothing. God has a perfect plan. God is Trinity. God is majestic. One last one there. There's many others we can say. Number 7. God reveals himself so that we can know him. God reveals himself so we can 
know him. Friends, Genesis 1-1, these first two Hebrew words, in the beginning God, is not just a random propositional truth. It is an invitation from our creator to come get to know him. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Richard Phillips. He's a Presbyterian pastor in South Carolina and a seminary professor. Richard Phillips said this. He said, in the beginning God created indicates that he wills to be known and to share a relationship with those outside himself. In the beginning, God created indicates that he wills to be known and to share a relationship with those outside himself. The reason for this intimacy is that God is personal as well as transcendent. Friends, God did not have to make the universe or us. God did not have to reveal himself to us and tell him that in the beginning, he was already there as Elohim, the one true God. But he chose to. Why? Because he's inviting us to come get to know him. Not a God of our own imagination, not us picking and choosing the parts of God's nature we like, but to come to know him for who he reveals himself to be, for who he really is. And so I'm convinced the truth of Genesis 1-1 comes with the invitation that we see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 as well. When God says, in the beginning, God, it comes with this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I'm convinced Genesis 1-1 and Hebrews 11-6 go together because he's telling us, in the beginning, I am here. And he's saying, have faith in that. Trust me in that. Believe in me and I will reward those who seek me. Now let's try to bring all that together. Here's the main truth of the first two words in Hebrew of the Bible for us here. Here's our truth for today. The very first words of the Bible reveal to us that there is an eternal, sovereign God who has a purpose for all of history and who invites us to know him personally. Just four words in English, in the beginning God, two words in the Hebrew. These reveal to us that there is an eternal, a sovereign God who's working all things in his perfect plan in all of history. And in the midst of his great transcendence and otherness, he invites us to come get to know him personally. This is the self-revelation of the one who has no beginning. The revelation of one who's outside of time, who needs nothing, who's independent. The one who has a perfect plan for history and a perfect plan for you. The one who will bring his plans to completion because he's sovereign. He's doing all this to show his glory so we can know him. This is the God who reveals himself in those first two words of the Bible, in the beginning God. That leads to one last question for us this morning. How should that truth change us? How should this truth in the beginning God change my life and your life. Now, friends, there's so many ways that it should change us. And I hope you'll ponder those this week. So if you want homework this week, think about that question. How do these first four words in English of the Bible, how should this truth change me? I want to suggest three this morning. Number one, this should cause us to want to know him more. This should cause us to want to know him more. God is so unlike us. Elohim is so transcendent, so different than anything we have. He is so glorious. He is so majestic. He is triune. Friends, we will never run out of things to learn about him. We talked about this Wednesday night in our attributes study, that for all eternity, we're not going to get bored with God, like, oh, I figured God out now. I need to go find something else to do for the next trillion years. We're never going to run out of things to learn about God because he's so majestic, so infinite, so grand. And that reality of all that's captured in these first two Hebrew words should lead us to want to know this glorious God even more. Number two, it should humble us, friends. This truth should humble us because there's no place for pride in us approaching the one who knows all things when we know so little, the one who's all-powerful when we are so weak, the one who's glorious when we are so mundane. Friends, God has all wisdom. We do not. And as we think about his greatness in these first few words of the Bible, it should lead us to a place of humility because he is God and we are not. And number three, can, can I suggest that this truth of who God is should lead us to prayer and to much 
dependent prayer. What we've been talking about in here for the last six weeks. The one who has all wisdom, all power, all insight, all strength has invited us to come to him. The one who has a plan for all things, who never has to settle for plan B, who has a perfect plan, who declares the end from the beginning, has invited us to talk to him. I don't have it on the screen, but here's Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my hope, help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Friends, our help is not found in our own striving. Our help is found in this God who's revealed himself in the beginning. God, as that should lead us to prayer. So this should cause us to want to know him more. This should humble us and should lead us to pray. So that leads us to the final question, friends. Do we know this God for who he really is? Do we know this God for who he really is? Friends, in all of our hearts, in my heart and your heart, there's things to where we try to create idols of our own imagination. Where we try to want God to be certain ways because we like certain things. But friends, God has not left that up to us to determine what he's to be like or left it up to us to decide what we like or don't like about God and his plans. He's called us to trust in him for who he really is and who he's revealed himself to be. So do we know God for who he really is? Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that you are a creating God, that you are a God who is a revealing God, and God, that you have not left it up to our imagination who you are or what we want you to be like. You've not left it up for us to dream up our own gods. But God, you, the self-sufficient, eternal, always existing one who needs nothing, spoke the world into being, spoke us into being, and now has spoken to reveal yourself to us. Lord, we are thankful that we have your revelation here. We are thankful that you inspired Moses to write these words down for us to where we understand who you are and how great you are. And Lord, I just pray not only for this morning, but as we go through these next 10 months looking at Genesis, that you would open my eyes and wonder in the eyes of these precious brothers and sisters and wonder that God, that we would see more of your greatness, more of your glory, more of who you are, and it would lead us to a place to where we realize we want to know you more, where it leads us to a place to where we seek your grace to kill pride and to humble ourselves before you and it leads us to a place to where we pray more because we realize you are the one from which our help comes from you who need nothing so would you take your word and would you let it anchor in my heart and anchor in the heart of these brothers and sisters that all throughout this week we would be reminded of your greatness and your sovereignty and your eternality and all these amazing truths about you that lead us to a place where we find great joy thinking about your glory and we ask it in jesus name Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song and think about the greatness and the majesty of God?
Father, we're thankful for the invitation you give us to come to know you, to worship you, to be satisfied in you, and to bring all our needs before you. We ask for much grace to do that this week. You know this week in our own strength, our own flesh, our own wisdom, God, we will run after everything besides you. So this week, would your Holy Spirit turn our hearts to desire you, to long to know you more, to long to pray, to long to read your word, to long to be in community with other believers. And Lord, I pray as we meet with you this week that we will find great joy and you'll get all the glory. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a good Sunday afternoon.